0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit SovGraceChurch.ca. Today is a special Sunday. It is the Sunday that we call New Member Sunday, when we will welcome a number of new members into our church. This is also the Sunday when we take the time to study what God's word teaches about what it means to be the church. All of us know what it means to go to church. That's why we're here. We have all gone to church, but not all of us know what it means to be the church. Being the church is more than going to church, though it certainly is not less. You cannot be the church if you're not going to church, but you can go to church without being the church. To truly be the church, you need to faithfully practice what we call the one-anothers of scripture. The one-anothers of scripture, not just to people in general, not just to your family members, but to the fellow members in the church that you attend and that you are a part of. These one-anothers in scripture are directed to churches and to believers within those churches and are meant to inform how we treat one another within the church, Here are some of the main one another's in scripture. We are to love one another. We are to honor one another. Comfort one another. Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. Serve one another. Encourage one another. Do good to one another. Bear with one another. Care for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. Exhort one another. You you want to know what a church is meant to look like? Look at that list. That list is meant to characterize how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. None of us do these one another's perfectly. And some of these one another's, some of us don't do at all. And that is a big reason why churches exist. That is a big reason why God has gifted churches with pastors and mature believers. It's to help us to do the one another's more faithfully. Today we're going to focus on one of the most important one another's in the Bible. And it's one of my personal favorites. It's this, to bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. We know that this is one of the most important one another commands in the Bible because Paul says that when we do this, when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus taught us that the entirety of God's moral law when it comes to how we treat one another is summed up by the command to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the law of Christ. And here the Apostle Paul tells us what that looks like. To love your neighbor as yourself is to bear your neighbor's burdens. And that means at least two things according to the text of Scripture we're going to look at today. It means that we bear with those who sin. And it means that we bear with those who suffer. Both sin and suffering have the potential to overwhelm us. And they would overwhelm us, but for the intervention of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who step in and help us. And so the title of this sermon is Bearing the Burdens of Sinners and Sufferers. And before I begin preaching, let's read our text together. We'll be in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. We'll be studying and applying to our lives today. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Bearing the burdens of sinners and sufferers. We're going to have a very simple outline today. First, bearing with sinners and second, bearing with sufferers. The first thing we need to note here in this text is the main command here in verse two, bear one another's burdens, is exactly that. It is a command. It is not a suggestion. It is not a bit of good advice. It is not something that we just do if we have the right personality or if we have a bunch of free time. This is an authoritative command from God himself to bear one another's burdens. This is not Optional. It is what everyone who trusts in Christ commits him or herself to do and to practice and to grow in. The word for burden here refers to a heavy stone or a a heavy weight that someone must carry for a long distance. Imagine the burden of chronic pain or the burden of unhealed scars from physical or emotional abuse or the lingering grief of losing a loved one. It can also be the burden of sin. Listen to what David says in Psalm 32 about his sin. For when I kept silent, that is, about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Sin is not just destructive. Sin is exhausting. It is exhausting for those who truly belong to God. Now we know that there are some people who love to do evil. To, to, to do what is wrong is in their comfort zone. But for Christians, sin saps our spiritual vitality, our emotional energy, even our physical strength. It weighs down our conscience to such a degree that we know that life is not normal. We feel its burden every day. And that, my friends, is an incredible gift. We live in such a therapeutic age that when you feel guilt, the therapists tell us that you need to get rid of the guilt as soon as possible because it's not healthy. Instead, you need to boost up your self-esteem. But the Bible teaches that guilt is a gift, at least when it leads us to Christ, because it tells us that how we're living our lives is not the way God intended us to live them. How we're living in sin is not only offensive to God, but it is self-destructive and it harms others. The burden of guilt is the heavy hand of God pressing down on us in love so that we would turn back to him and live. But sometimes we need help doing that, don't we? Sometimes we just don't have the strength of will or the moral fortitude or the internal strength to give up our sin by ourselves because we've come to love our sin just too much. And we need someone to call us out on it, to identify it and to say, that has to stop. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse one. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness Paul begins this calling on those who are spiritual to restore those who are caught in sin by addressing them as brothers. As brothers, this this word can be translated as brothers and sisters. Paul is reminding both the men and the women in the church of how their identity in Christ has changed their identity in relation to one another. As they address one another's sin, they are not functioning as the moral police. That's what the Pharisees did when they were on the lookout to tell on others. No, who we are in Christ has made us brothers and sisters. We are family. And therefore, when we bring the sins of a brother or sister to their attention, we do so not to harm them, not to hurt them, not because we are against them, but because we are for them. Because we love them because we want to see them flourish. And part of the way they express this love is through loving correction. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The word caught here means detected, overtaken, to be surprised, to be discovered. It's what happens when you catch your teenage son watching stuff he shouldn't or you discover that your spouse has been lying on your family tax returns, or you learn that your trusted friend, your confidant, has been talking behind your back. It's what happens whenever we catch someone doing something they shouldn't be doing. And when that happens, our natural instinct is to yell, or to judge, or to write them off. But Paul calls us to something greater. He calls us to restore them, to restore them. This is a a beautiful word that means to bring back to a condition to function well. To bring back to a condition to function well. Imagine taking a broken appliance or a broken piece of furniture and restoring it so that you can actually use it for what it was made for. In the ancient world, this word restore was actually used in medical contexts. To, to reset a broken or disjointed bone or, or joint, to set it back into place. And, and that is what we set out to do when we seek to restore brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. We want to restore them to a place where they can function well in the world that God has made, and to glorify God by their lives, and to enjoy God as they live that way. But there are a couple of caveats to this. Paul says that the work of restoration is for the spiritual. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Being spiritual does not mean existing on some different transcendent plane of meditation and, you know, just being detached from this world. That's not what it means. To be spiritual in the biblical sense, is to be influenced by and filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who are spiritual are those who are influenced by and filled with the Holy Spirit. If you look back at chapter 5, that's exactly what the context teaches us. Many of us know that famous passage in Galatians chapter 5 that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps learned a song when you were a kid about the fruit of the Spirit, memorized it, thought deeply about the fruit of the Spirit, but Galatians 5 is, is about much more than the fruit of the Spirit. It is also about being filled with the Spirit and being influenced by the Spirit. Paul has various ways of describing this. In chapter 5, verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, led by the Spirit. Verse 25, you live by the Spirit. Verse 25, keep in step with the Spirit. And so it is when we walk by, are led by, we live by and keep in step with the spirit that we bear the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the spirit is precisely what we need if we are going to engage in this sacred and difficult work of restoring brothers and sisters who are caught in sin. Paul says that restoring them should be done in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. And you look at the fruit of the spirit and what is, what is one of the fruits? It is gentleness. We are to restore brothers and sisters in this kind of spirit that only comes from the fruit of the spirit that re- is the result of being led by the spirit. Without gentleness, our attempts to restore sinners would be characterized by harshness, impatience, and self-righteousness. But... With gentleness, we will restore sinners with tenderness, with patience, and with humility. In his commentary on the book of Galatians, John Calvin wrote, we are here taught to correct the faults of brethren in a mild manner, and to consider no rebukes as partaking a religious and Christian character which do not breathe the spirit of meekness. That is our aim to get to the place where you could catch someone in their sin and restore them, not with a spirit of harshness, but with a spirit of meekness. It sounds easy, but it's not. Because we tend to correct people with a spirit of anger or a spirit of apathy. Pastor Tim has taught us to ask ourselves the question, when is the last time you corrected your spouse? Think back to that time. 99% 99% of the time when we correct our spouse, it is in the context of an argument. It is not done gently. It is not done with patience. We, we either correct with a spirit of anger or we do not correct because we have a spirit of apathy. We either make it personal and we blow up at people or we decide that it's not our business and we do nothing at all. Now, Paul sets out a better way for us. To restore sinners in a spirit of gentleness. And for that to happen, we need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. That is why Paul warns us in verse 1 to keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. To keep watch on yourself, he's not speaking to the person being restored. He's speaking to the person doing the restoring. It is, it is the physician preparing to operate on the patient in the surgical room. It is the physician who needs to watch his or her own life. Because this sin disease that we treat, it is contagious. It can infect the one treating it as well. And so if we are to restore sinners, we cannot approach that person in that situation with a flippant or carefree manner but with a watchfulness over our own souls, with an introspection and a wariness that we could easily be tempted to sin because we are sinners as well. Our hearts are prone to incline to the same things. Sometimes it's the same things. We can be tempted in the same way. Like you discover that your friend is sleeping around or your coworkers are cutting corners and you think, well, why can't I do that? I mean, they're getting away with it. Their life still looks good. Why can't I do the same thing? Sometimes our temptations will be totally different, like when your friend starts falling into sin and you start doubting the goodness of God or you start exalting yourself as one who is, is, is better than others. Sin is the original pandemic. It is the worst virus that has ever hit our world, spreading from one person to another. And the only protection we have from it as we lovingly approach those who are sinning, not keeping our distance, but but bearing the burden of sin with them by helping them take that burden off, the only way we can do so safely is through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. This is the obligation that we have towards one another in the church. You look around at the people sitting in the pews beside you and in front of you and behind you, and you are to take responsibility for the spiritual and moral well-being of those people. And when someone is caught in a sin, you are willing to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That is the first way that we bear one another's burdens. When the burden is sin, we help the person take that burden off. But when the burden is suffering, there may be times when we can do something to take it off. But more often than not, the only thing we can do is to help them carry it for as long as the Lord ordains. And that leads to our second point, bearing with sufferers. Now this one, you may be thinking, oh, this one's, this one's easier, I can do this one. I don't, I don't want to talk about sin, but I can talk about suffering, because suffering, I mean, we all experience it, right? There's, there's no shame in suffering, there is shame in sin. I can do this one, but the, this one, in fact... Reality check, this one is the harder of the two. To bear with the burden of sin is often a short-term commitment. You appeal to the person to repent, to return to the Lord, to give up their sin, and you do that a few times, and, and they either respond or they don't. If they do, then the burden is gone, and you've regained your brother or sister in Christ. But if they don't respond, then there comes a time when we have to let them face the consequences of their own sinful choices. Either way, your work is done. But bearing with suffering, bearing with suffering is different. It is completely different in nature. It is not a short term commitment, it is a long term commitment because, as we have seen in our study in the book of Job, pain lingers, grief remains, suffering doesn't just go away. Bearing with sufferers means walking the long and lonely road with them, because that is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says this about the law in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul puts flesh on that skeleton. He helps us to see what it means to fulfill the law by loving our neighbor. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is saying that you fulfill the law by loving your neighbor, and you love your neighbor by bearing their burdens. In his classic commentary on Galatians, John Stott explains, it is very impressive that to love our neighbor, bear one another's burdens, and fulfill the law are three equivalent expressions. It shows that to love one another as Christ loved us may lead us not to some heroic, spectacular deed of self-sacrifice, but to the much more mundane and unspectacular ministry of burden-bearing. My friends, this is what burden-bearing looks like. It is mundane, and it is unspectacular. To to bear one another's burdens is less like acting the hero and more like acting the donkey, a spiritual burden-bearer laden with other people's baggage and just steadily plodding along. It is bringing a meal to the sick, It is being present with the grieving and washing their dishes and folding their laundry. It is being available for a phone call. It is texting a verse of scripture. It is letting someone know that you are praying for them. It is being slow to speak and quick to listen. It may seem like undignified work, especially when we imagine acting as a kind of spiritual donkey. (laughs) But it's not. Because the dignity of the burden bearer depends on the value of the burden being born. There's a lot of bees in there. The dignity of the burden bearer depends on the value of the burden being born. Think about the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem. How many books and poems and stories and films have been made about that donkey? Not because that donkey was anything special in itself, but because the one he bore was sacred, The the eternal son of God was riding into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. And now we have the opportunity to bear the beloved people of Christ. We carry those described in scripture as as making up the very bride of Christ. That, That donkey carried the son of God. And we get to carry the bride of the son of God. Christ identifies himself so closely with his people. That he says in Matthew chapter 25, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. That the least of these, my brothers, he says. The ones he died for. The members of the bride of Christ. Whether you fed them, clothed them, housed them, visited them, whatever you did for them, you did for Christ. My friends, this is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Because this is what Christ did on our behalf. He is not asking us to do something he was not willing to do first. We take the burdens of others upon ourselves because Christ took our burdens upon himself. He took our burden of sin. And he took our burden of suffering. Isaiah 53 says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That is the burden of suffering. But it also says that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That is the burden of sin. Jesus took our burden of sin and our burden of suffering. Jesus was the ultimate burden bearer, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve and tasting the suffering of death on our behalf and fulfilling the law of love so that all who trust in him could go and do the same. This is the power of the gospel. It takes people who run from burdens and changes them into people who run towards them instead. That The ultimate burden bearer creates a host of men and women who are committed to the mundane and unspectacular ministry of burden bearing. But that doesn't happen overnight. That is who we have the potential to be because of what Christ has done and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It takes time and it takes grace and it takes countless cycles of sinning and confessing and repenting and trying by the grace of God to obey this command to bear one another's burdens because we are still sinners. The power of sin is broken, yes, but the presence of sin remains. And that's why Paul writes verses three to five. In verse three, Paul peers into the human heart to diagnose why exactly it is that we find it difficult to bear one another's burdens. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The reason why we don't bear one another's burdens is because we think we're something when we're actually nothing we can have such an overinflated view of ourselves that we either refuse to take on the burdens of others or we refuse to share our burdens with those same people. I mean, you think about it, both are equally problematic. This command to bear one another's burdens breaks down when we're not willing to take on the burdens of others, but it also breaks down when we're not willing to share our burdens with others. You can have a whole room of people who are willing to take on burdens. But if no one is willing to share their burdens with others, this isn't going to happen. The only way for burden bearing to happen is for us, all of us, to remember that we are nothing. And to not be too proud or believe the myth of self-sufficiency to the extent that we do not share our burdens with others. We are not strong We are dust. We are not self-sufficient. The very breath in our lungs, every single breath is a gift from God. We can't handle sin and suffering by ourselves. God designed us to need one another. God designed us to bear our burdens with one another. Timothy George writes, the myth of self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but rather a sign of pride. And so if we are to be a burden-bearing church, we must not deceive ourselves in thinking that we are something when we are actually nothing. Paul ends this passage in verses four to five. He says, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load. Now it seems at first glance that Paul is contradicting himself. first he said, bear one another's burdens, and now he says each will have to bear his own load, But, but he's not contradicting himself because at this point he's talking about something else. He's actually talking about a different load. Again, John Stott points out that the word for burden in verse two means this overwhelming weight or stone that you're carrying along. But the word for load in verse five, each will have to bear his own load, refers to a backpack that someone would be wearing, a soldier or a pilgrim would be carrying with them. their personal possessions. Paul is talking in verse five about what we will bring before the throne of God on the great day of judgment. And we will have to bear our own load before God. We, we know, if you're a Christian here, you know that when you appear before the throne of God, your appeal will not be to your own life. It will be to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And when God says, why should I let you into my kingdom? You point to him and you say, because he died for me. And he lived a perfect life for me. And he rose again from the dead so that I could have true life in him, both now and forevermore, through faith, by grace, as a gift. We know that. But we also know, and we must not forget, that we also have to give an account of our own lives, not for the sake of our justification, our salvation, our entry into God's kingdom, but for the sake of our eternal reward. God will give us the opportunity to boast about ourselves. It's right there in the Bible that each one tests his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. We boast not in an arrogant or prideful way, but in an honest assessment of how we used our gifts, our talents, our resources, our time that God gave us. And that will include giving an account for whether we obeyed the command to bear one another's burdens. And when we do give an account, we cannot say, well, God, I, yeah, I could have done that better, but at least I did it better than that person, or that person down the road, or that person who sat at the opposite side of the sanctuary. Paul's saying we can't do that. That's what he means when he says his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. There there will be no comparison before the throne of God. There will only be our lives measured under the objective standard of God's law and not by the standard of God's people. One of our goals here at Sovereign Grace is that we are committed to preparing you for that day. I mean, each of us, yes, we have to bear our own load, but perhaps we can help each other to stuff that knapsack so full that when we appear before God, we'll have much to present before him. And I can say so many of you already excel at obeying this command. You bear many burdens that are not yours. They belong to others, but you have taken them upon yourself. I mean, my my personal testimony is that since May 2020, we have been receiving almost a meal per week from people in our church. From my family, yes, my faithful parents have been bringing us meals, but so many of you have been bringing us meals as we expected our sixth child. And as we recovered from his appearance in our lives, we we have needed food. My wife has needed a break from the kitchen and you have borne our burdens with us by feeding us. And that is a, a testimony that you will bring before the throne of God. You'll bring it out of your knapsack and say, God, look, look what I did for Pastor Josh and his family. And Jesus will say, whatever you did for the least of these brothers, You did it for me. We are a burden-bearing church. But as this church grows, as we add new members, we need to recommit ourselves to being and growing and being strengthened in being a burden-bearing church. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to be that kind of church, we need to commit ourselves to at least these three things. First, relational investment. Relational investment. If you want to build the kinds of relationships with people where they are sharing their sin or their suffering with you, then it takes time. The first ingredient is time, there is no substitute for time. Investing yourself deeply into a small number of relationships, deeply into a small number is far more important than investing yourself broadly into a large number of relationships. Investing broadly may give you many contexts to socialize, but investing deeply will give you a context to have people bear your burdens. That is part of the vision behind our tags, our small groups, that people wouldn't just come and attend because they are drawn to the teacher, but because they are drawn to one another and they are committed to one another in the long term to bear each other's burdens. Now you may think, well, I have my family for that. Thank you very much. I don't, I don't need to invest in relationships. I have my parents, I have my siblings, I have my cousins, whatever it is, and that's, that's wonderful. Our families are, are gifts from God to help us to bear our burdens. But if we are to bear our burdens in a distinctly Christian way, we must devote ourselves to our spiritual family and not just to our biological family. To only bear the burdens of our families is to show that we are no different than the rest of the world. I mean, my neighbors are all non-Christians and they, they have family that bear their burdens. To, to bear burdens in a distinctly Christian way is to commit yourself to people who have nothing in common with you except Christ. And to say, that person, that brother or sister in Christ, who is one with me through one spirit, through one baptism, through one Lord, I'm going to take their burdens. And I'm willing to share my burdens with them. If we are going to be a burden-bearing church filled with burden-bearing believers, we need to give each other time. Second, We need self-sacrificing service. Some people don't commit themselves to the mundane and unspectacular ministry of burden bearing because they say, I don't need it. I'm good. I'm self-sufficient. I have a good support network. I'm strong enough to bear the burdens that I have. Well, I don't want people to get into my private life But did you know that there are people in this room who have deep and discouraging burdens? You look around and it looks like everyone's okay, everyone's happy, everyone's doing fine, but under the surface, and I say that as a pastor who knows the burdens that people bear, underneath that, not everyone is fine. There are Lonely people in this room, there are depressed people in this room, there are people who feel that no one cares about them, that no one would remember them if they just disappear from the face of this earth. And that is why obeying the command to bear one of those burdens takes self-sacrificing service. You come to church not primarily to be served, but to serve. Like our self-sacrificing saviour. I came into the world, Jesus said, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And we need to beware of bringing the consumer mindset into the church, where we ask ourselves the question, what's in it for me? And we stop asking that question, we start asking the question, what can I do for others? To to show up with your eyes open, ready to, to discover and to meet the burdens of others, to help them carry it alongside them, just as Christ carried your burdens. We need to be a church full of people who are committed to self sacrificing service. And lastly, if it takes spirit filled people to bear one another's burdens with gentleness, with perseverance, even with joy, then we need to commit ourselves to being a praying church because it is when we pray that the Spirit moves. It's when they pray by themselves and it's when they pray together. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit comes to those who ask. And so if you say, I'm not spiritual enough to bear the burdens of sinners and sufferers, I'm just not spiritual enough, well, it's because you have not, because you ask not. God delights to give us the spirit because it's the spirit who makes us more like Christ. And God delights when his people resemble his only son who fulfilled the law of love. It is the spirit who makes us the kinds of people who restore sinners with a spirit not of harshness, not of self-righteousness, not of judgmentalism, but a spirit of gentleness. If we are to be a burden-bearing church, then we must be a praying church. So come, pray with us, and let us see how God will answer. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it is hard for us to bear the burdens of others because many of us have burdens that we are struggling to bear ourselves. But we want to obey this command. We want to be increasingly the kind of church that looks not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. And so we pray Come, Holy Spirit, come and bring about the fruit of the Spirit, including the fruit of gentleness that we would be able to approach people in their suffering or in their sin and be gentle with them. May you be glorified as we do what Christ did for us in bearing the burdens of others. In Jesus' name, amen.